Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, does the government have plans to extend benefit programs if the pandemic continues? We obviously uh, knew from the start that we needed to implement the Canada Emergency Response Benefit quickly in order to make sure that Canadians could stay healthy while being able to put food on the table. So 7.5 million Canadians have received support from the CERB and will continue to be there for Canadians. The country's chief medical officer of health stresses the importance of contact tracing. It is a fundamental aspect of the public health response. And we know that uh, public health units are doing this. We want, and, and if needed, uh, we can help with increasing contact tracing capacity. Jugmeet Singh says the NDP would support a ban on assault weapons, but he wants clarity from the government. I leave it to the Liberals to clarify what they're actually saying, but New Democrats have been clear, we believe that these weapons should be off the streets. It's Thursday, May the 7th. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by National Post columnist John Iveson. John, thank you for being with us. Morning, Mark. Your column in the National Post today is about the prospect of an early election, a snap election, which presumably would capitalize on the popularity of the Liberal government. Uh, and their handling of the coronavirus crisis. Uh, the, the popular support for governments tends to go up in a time of crisis, but also capitalize on the declining fortunes of the Conservative Party under their interim leader, Andrew Scheer, and at a time when nobody, or very few people anyway, seem to be captivated by any of the candidates to replace him. So how likely is this prospect, and how soon might it happen? Well, I don't think it's likely in the immediate short term. I mean, obviously, if the, if the virus is still raging, very hard to hold an election. Talking to people in the PMO, they're saying they don't think there's a chance of a fall election either. People like Tom Mulcair, the former NDP leader, have, have pointed out that the, the response to the crisis has racked up massive debts, $10,000 per man, woman and child in Canada. And at some point, there will have to be in all likelihood, new taxes to deal with that. Now, if I was Prime Minister, I would prefer to hold an election before I started increasing taxes. I think I would like to hold an election before there were audits on some of the government spending that's taking place, because I think inevitably there will be, those audits will unearth some kind of misspending. I think I would like to, if I were Prime Minister, I'd like to hold an election before memories of all the largesse the government has has uh, uh, heaped upon the, the electorate have faded. And at some point, the Conservatives will get their act together. So if I, I think if I was Prime Minister, I'd like to get have an election before all of that. So are we talking this, this fall? Probably not. Next spring? Possibly. That would be very interesting. Now, another question uh, concerning timing. Uh, of course, in, in some provinces in the country, moves are being taken to restart the economy, to have businesses reopen, uh, to have people going back to school, that sort of thing. Uh, but there are questions, too, about how long government benefits could be extended in parts of the country where the hardship continues. Do you think it is possible that that some of the benefits that have been given to Canadians to help them through this crisis could be extended beyond their current timetables? Well, I think that inevitably there have been um, miscalculations made with some of the benefits. And that's not a, a, a criticism because I think that it was an impossible situation. You know, very quickly the government got the Canada Emergency Response benefit out the door. Checks landed very quickly, incredibly quickly. I don't think anybody could quite believe that the government managed this. The, but the other major response was the uh, wage subsidy. 
and it only came into being last uh, week past Monday. And its take-up has been much less than was expected. And I think in relative terms, the government had calculated that the about 5.8 million people would, would take the, the CERB and in the real, in reality, because it was uh, because the wage subsidy was somewhat delayed, it turned out to be 7.3 million people. The, the wage subsidy, which where the government had allocated most of the money, has only thus far covered about 1.7 million Canadians. So I think, and and most economists see the wage subsidy as a uh, a means of recovery or a, a way toward recovery. You know, it links Canadians with their employer and means that as businesses start gearing up again, there's a ready-made workforce. So I could envisage that the wage subsidy is extended, perhaps even to the end of the year. Maybe not at the rate it's at at the moment, which is 75% of of a a worker's wage, but maybe at a reduced level, you could see that wage subsidy extended, you know, as I say, perhaps even six months. And as people go back to work, what steps do you think are going to be taken to keep track of their movements in case there is another outbreak and uh, and some type of uh, some type of measures have to be taken to contact all the people who they've been in contact with? Teresa Tam, the uh, top public health official in the country, spoke yesterday about this concept of contact tracing and how necessary that might be at a certain point. Right. Well, this I guess gets into the debate about. Uh privacy and, and how willing Canadians are to have their movements tracked on their cell phones, for example. I mean, the apps do exist. The, the countries like South Korea have used them. Singapore have used them. You know, this is a debate that, uh, that Justin Trudeau has, has talked about. In those countries, it was imposed upon the citizenry. I think in Canada, it would have to be voluntary. that You agree to have your movements tracked, and therefore, in the event that you catch COVID, your uh, your contacts can be traced. I think we're not quite there yet, and the debate is still uh, still brewing. One of the issues that uh, has been raised a few times during this crisis is what to do about the uh, oil and gas sector in Alberta, what kind of support it requires. It's obviously been through uh, a massive downturn at this time. Yesterday, uh, uh, Elizabeth May, the uh, parliamentary leader of the Green Party, and Bloc Québécois leader Yves-François Blanchette uh, warned the government against supporting the oil industry, saying oil is dead, uh, that we've got to put our investments towards green technology, green energy. Uh, what do you think about that? What's the, uh, where does the government stand in this dilemma that it's facing? Well, it's not quite clear yet. I mean, they have devoted money to... Uh to uh, cleaning up orphan wells, which is basically an environmental measure. You know, Elizabeth May saying this, Elizabeth was quite surprised, apparently, that this was was uh, received with such outrage. I mean, she is the Green Party leader, and she's been saying oil is dead for, for quite a while. So it's not exactly, she's not exactly changed her tune. You know, she's pointed out that investment in the oil sands has been falling for quite a while. I think in twenty. 19, it was about a third of what it was five years earlier. This is part of this sustainable finance initiative where, you know, essentially large investors are looking elsewhere to invest because of the reputation of of the oil sands as being not environmentally friendly. Um, I think there are are huge problems here. Clearly, they were exacerbated by the flood of product which uh, came from the the Saudi-Russia dispute. COVID has 
complicated things further by drying up demand, you know, I don't think we're going to come back to the same energy environment that we, we left pre-COVID. And, you know, the, the stark facts are that the Saudis can extract relatively low-footprint oil for around about $3 a barrel. The Canadian equivalent is, you know, five, six times that. So so I think that there are real problems here that um, that even the Jason Kenney's government is starting to address. You know, even Kenney has acknowledged the need to transition away from from the uh, high high footprint carbon industries. Quite what that means as far as the government response remains to be seen. Uh, you know, they've they've clearly they've invested in in the uh, Trans Mountain pipeline, so they are somewhat uh, they do have skin in the game here. But you know, I think the, the finance minister and the prime minister would think it would be no great mischief if this industry withered of itself. And I think that their their idea is more to pick up the pieces after that transition than to keep the industry going. Let's talk about the government's plans to increase gun control, banning assault-style weapons and some handguns in the aftermath of the deadly shooting in Nova Scotia over two weeks ago. The NDP appears to be supporting some of these moves with some conditions. The Conservatives are lining up against some of these measures. Uh, where do you, where do we stand on this, and what's your assessment of, of where this is going? Well, the government has brought in uh, restrictions on rifles, military-style firearms, as, as the government deemed them. Uh, done, they've done that through regulation, so that doesn't need to pass through Parliament. Uh, there have been... There's a bit of a dispute as to whether there's a coherence to that plan because it it, it bans some guns and it uh, doesn't ban others that are more or less identical. So I think that there is there's a contro- controversy there. The bigger thing to to me is the handgun ban. The go- the federal government's role there is to allow municipalities to ban handguns, but that would require legislation. I'm sure there's support in Parliament for that. Uh, they got a mandate to do it in the last election. It's surprising to me, somewhat surprising to me, that they haven't done so already or they didn't do so almost immediately. But I think they see this as a, a an electoral issue for them, um, that when they bring this in, it will do them good and it will do the Conservatives ill because they, they will no doubt oppose it. That's a pretty cynical view, given the, the number of people in the interim who might die of being shot by handguns. But uh, I can't think of another explanation why they haven't immediately brought in legislation allowing municipalities to ban these handguns, they would clearly get the support of the NDP, they would clearly get the support of the bloc, so it would pass. To me, it's uh, it's a, a no-brainer. I, I saw a similar ban happen in the UK after the Dunblane shooting in the, the, the mid-90s, and it worked. You know, clearly there will still be gun crime because criminals will not uh, register guns, and they will still find access to get them across the border from the US, but it's a ban that works, and uh, frankly, I think it's pretty cynical that it hasn't come in already. All right, John, great to have your comments on all these topics today. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Mark. That's John Iveson of the National Post. Right now, we're in a situation where there is a tremendous degree of uncertainty as to what the economy could look like six months from now, what the economy could look like three months from now, what's going to happen in the coming weeks. Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. At National News Watch, C. Scott Clark and Peter DeVries argue there is no need to panic about the deficit yet. They write, Does the federal government face a looming financial crisis? 
What happens will depend entirely on political decisions regarding the suite of temporary programs introduced to assist individuals and businesses facing financial struggles due to the pandemic. The Prime Minister has said this is not the time for a budget. He is probably right. There is still far too much uncertainty to prepare a full budget. Until a vaccine is discovered, any economic forecast will be a shot in the dark. At globalnews.ca, Matthew Fisher argues Canada has become an outlier, with barely a harsh word to say about China throughout this tragic drama. Fisher writes, Political leaders from around the world have demanded transparency about the origins of the virus and why Beijing chose not to share information in a timely fashion. And it has suddenly dawned on the West that there has been an over-reliance on trade with China. At some point, Canada will have to stop admiring China's basic dictatorship, as Justin Trudeau infamously once put it, and join its allies in forging a common position on China that reflects the emerging post-COVID realities. In the National Post, Terry Glavin argues a fear of China explains Canada's reluctance to probe the origins of COVID-19. Glavin writes, Chinese ambassadors have been hauled on the carpet in several countries for uttering threats and trafficking in conspiracy theories. But Canada has gone so far as to laud China's conduct in its handling of the outbreak. For now, Beijing and Canada carry on in their own duet. We mustn't play the blame game. Now is not the time for finger-pointing. For now, then, the most plausible hypothesis is that the Trudeau government is afraid of something. The big question that remains is, afraid of what? Now, here's what's coming up on Canada's political agenda. The Prime Minister returns to Ottawa to give his daily update on the federal government's response to the coronavirus pandemic. CPAC's Martin Stringer has more on one group of Canadians who may soon hear about increased federal aid. Mark, for weeks now, the Prime Minister has said that there will be more to announce in terms of economic assistance for seniors. Most of the federal government's focus so far in its emergency measures has been on replacing Canadians' income who have been affected by the COVID-19 crisis. Most seniors continue to have a stable income with the Canada and Quebec pensions and old age supplements. But seniors are facing increased costs, isolation and vulnerability. So the Prime Minister so far has announced $9 million in funding to be distributed through the United Way to frontline organizations providing services to seniors such as deliveries and meal services. And Ottawa has cut by 25% the amount seniors will have to withdraw this year from the Registered Retirement Investment Funds, or RIFs, and that's to protect them from the plunge in the stock market. But senior groups are looking for more. And the question is, what form will that additional assistance take? This week, Manitoba, for example, announced it was cutting one-time checks uh, for $200 to seniors in the province. So we'll be watching with interest what and when the Prime Minister announces his next round of seniors' aid. Thanks, Martin. Also today, Governor-General of Canada, Julie Payette, will host a virtual discussion with Canada's Chief Science Advisor. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Thursday, May the 7th. Tune in to CPAC and CPAC.ca throughout the day today for continuing coverage of the coronavirus crisis. Our podcast returns tomorrow morning. Have a great day.